Good morning. Merry Christmas. You ready for Luke? Let's turn there. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 19, please. Two weeks ago, as you know, if you've been here with us since that time, we began looking at Jesus through the eyes of each of the four Gospels in turn separately, asking ourselves what might each Gospel emphasize about Jesus, what He's like, what He's about, who He is. One emphasis in Matthew that we looked at was Matthew emphasizes Jesus as the righteous teacher. In Mark, we looked at Jesus as suffering Messiah. This week, it's Luke's turn, and in Luke, we'll find yet a different emphasis into Jesus. One emphasis in Luke, at least, is Jesus the compassionate Savior. Now, Luke includes many of the same stories from Matthew and Mark that highlight Jesus' exalted and divine nature. But most readers of Luke might agree that those stories, those stories of the divine Jesus, they don't dominate Luke's gospel as much as they do in Matthew and in Mark. Rather, Luke seems to place a special emphasis in his gospel as, on, as a whole on a different side of Jesus. In Luke, it's Jesus' humanity that shines through. And this is seen especially in Jesus' intense and heartfelt compassion, compassion for the outcasts of society especially, for those that his world ignored and avoided at all costs. Or even worse, for those in his world that were vehemently exploited or shunned or shamed and called worthless. Indeed, you pick any spot in the Gospel of Luke and you begin reading, and you will not read for very long, I guarantee you, before you see Jesus teaching or even literally reaching out in love and compassion toward such a motley crew... As Samaritans, Gentiles, tax collectors, and sinners, women who were not regarded as much more than possessions in that day, unfortunately. And there are more significant, amazing women running around in Luke's gospel than in any other. Those who were sick, the poor, or dispossessed, or struggling to make it in life. The Jesus in Luke is relentless in His loving pursuit of those that His world abandoned as insignificant, as worthless. It's interesting to note that Luke was a doctor by trade. You know, and I don't doubt for a second that in searching for the author of the third gospel, in looking for who would be the best person to capture and emphasize Jesus' great compassion for the hurting, I don't doubt for a second that God intentionally found a caring doctor to write the Gospel of Luke. It's no coincidence. Who better, who better to tell the story of the great physician than a physician? Who better to capture the empathetic heart of a healer? Who better to tell the story of Jesus, the one who had compassion on the hurting? Who better than a doctor? Someone whose own passion in life was to bring comfort and healing. Who better to write Luke's Gospel than someone 
who spent a significant portion of his own life at least kneeling by the bedposts of the sick and the dying. No, it's no coincidence that a doctor wrote this Gospel of Luke. This Gospel of Luke is precisely the Gospel that a healer would write. The emphasis of a compassionate Savior is exactly how a doctor would present Jesus. In addition to caring for the hurting, doctors are also well-educated, yes? At least we hope so. At least the good ones. Maybe that's why Luke includes so many parables of Jesus. Depending on how you decide what makes a parable a parable, there are about 40 different parables of Jesus in the four Gospels combined. Of those 40, Luke alone includes 28 of those 40, more than any other single Gospel. And 15 of those 40 in Luke, 15 are only found in Luke. And that's more unique parables than any other single Gospel as well. And just look at the list on the screen before you of of, of some of those parables, at least, that are only found in Luke. The Good Samaritan, the Lost Coin, the Lost Sheep, the Pharisee and the Tax Collector, the Prodigal Son, the Rich Man and Lazarus, the Rich Fool, the Unjust Judge, just to name a few. And you can tell even by the titles if you don't recall the whole parable, can't you? These are parables especially addressing and uplifting the hurting and the outcast and the poor. Luke's heart for the hurting, it pours from his story, his gospel, as he emphasizes Jesus' compassion for those the world calls worthless. One example where we can see that Luke's emphasis is slightly different than Matthew's, for example, is in the Beatitudes. Remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. All the blessed are's, right? Luke's version leans toward Jesus' humanity, while Matthew's leads toward the exalted and divine Jesus, some might say. You say, well, where do you see that? Well, for example, have you ever noticed, all but the last beatitude in Matthew is in third person. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew writes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Theirs and they is third person. Third person always has that sound or tendency, doesn't it, to put the people being talked about kind of more at arm's length. Them, theirs, they. But look at how Luke writes his Beatitudes. Luke writes in the far more personal second person, directly speaking to the people that's reading. Blessed are you poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. And I grant you this may be a very subtle difference, but isn't it one that rather, rather dramatically shifts the emphasis? It's much more personal in Luke. It's not only an abstract theological truth that the poor and the meek somewhere will be blessed someday, in Luke, it's connected to you and to me. It's connected to you poor and you hungry. He's talking directly rather than indirectly. So even, even in his choice of pronouns, Luke seems to be stressing that more personal, intimate, relational, compassionate side of Jesus in his teaching. 
Here's a couple more from the Beatitudes that are not nearly as subtle. First, you may have noticed, Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. But Luke says, Blessed are you poor. Period. Now that shifts the emphasis of Jesus' teaching that day a bit, doesn't it? In the same way, Matthew says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The righteous teacher. Of course, Matthew would say it that way. But Luke says, Blessed are you that are hungry now. Matthew's Gospel, the author, seems to be stressing that more exalted, divine, spiritual side of Jesus' teaching, which is important. What it means to be poor and hungry in a more spiritual sense. But in Luke, man, The author stresses the more practical, human side of Jesus' teaching. What it means to be literally or physically poor and hungry now. Second, Luke includes a bunch of woes. Did you ever notice that? Curses, really, on all of those who are exploiting the poor and hungry. Luke puts them on notice. Matthew's version leaves that part out. Did you ever notice? It's personal. For the Jesus in Luke. Luke more clearly shows Jesus empathizing with the hurting. Even sharing their their indignation against and, and desire for judgment one day against those who have their boot on their necks. Can we see how in, in Luke, even how he frames the Beatitudes, that he's stressing Jesus' more personal compassion for those who are hurting right now? in very real and literal ways. Before we leave the Beatitudes, just two more quick notes. Do you know, do you know what the only Beatitude unique to Luke is? How many of you know? Man. I'm not mad at you. I get frustrated with whatever causes a community of God's learned people, most of you at least, not including me. (laughs) We don't know this. We always mash the Gospels together. What? What what kind of question is that? I love this. What's the only one that that Luke has that Matthew doesn't. Look at the screen. Luke adds, it's the only one that's distinctive to Luke. Blessed are you that weep now, for you're going to laugh. I gave it a little southern. I love that. No staunch arm's length away dry theology there. Are you crying now, Jesus says, over life? Well, one day... You're going to laugh. What a delightful way to picture the promises of God. Does it get more personal or more intimate or dig deeper than the difference between gut-wrenching weeping with sorrow and laughing out loud in joy? What's more human than that swing of emotion? Or how about this? Have you ever noticed that Matthew concludes his Beatitudes by saying, Rejoice! And be glad, says Matthew. Be glad. But look at Luke. 
Look at Luke, who has just told us the story in the previous chapter of a paralyzed man jumping to his feet. Luke's version, when he shuts down the Beatitudes, he ends with, Rejoice and leap for joy! This is a be glad. You can kind of see Luke. He's reading, oh, Matthew, that was, you know, be glad. Where's my thesaurus, right? Ah, leap for joy! What a doctor thing to say. Thinking, no doubt, of the lame who the, promise, prom, the prophets promised that the Messiah would heal. Now, Jesus is not only compassionate in Luke, but He is Savior. That title, Savior, perhaps sums up Jesus' humanity and compassion for the lost. Only in Luke's account of Jesus' birth, did you know this? I'm afraid to ask you. Only in Luke's account of Jesus' birth is He called Savior. The angel announces, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. In fact, check out this statistic. It blew me away again when I looked at it this past week. I had forgotten it and saw it again. The Greek words for Savior and salvation, those two huge words, they occur eight times in Luke, Nine times in Acts, and you remember Luke wrote Acts, yes? You better. We're studying a series in Acts, those of you who are visiting. The Greek words for Savior and salvation occur eight times in Luke, nine times in Acts, but nowhere else in either of the remaining two synoptic Gospels. Are you surprised? Matthew and Mark never use the word Savior or salvation, but Luke uses the word Savior and salvation 17 times in Luke and Acts. Hmm. Do you suppose Luke is emphasizing that Jesus is the Savior and that in Christ Jesus alone is the salvation of the world? Indeed, if we want a one-verse summary of Luke's entire Gospel, if we want his thesis statement, we can simply boil it down and point to Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke wrote his Gospel, essentially, to tell us that. That Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The outcasts. The ones especially that the world calls worthless. In Luke, Jesus is indeed the compassionate Savior. He came to seek and to save what was lost. All right, your Bibles are open to Luke 19. With the time we have left, I'd like to look together at the story of uh, perhaps the most famous wee little man in history. Yes? You know the song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Okay. The most famous wee little man in history. No, it's not Napoleon, it's Zacchaeus. I'm reading Luke 19, beginning at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. 
All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. These are the very words of God. Amen? Now, I, like you, I'm sure most of you at least have heard the story of Zacchaeus before and have had lessons taught from it. And the most common application, it seems to me, that I've heard of this story goes something like this. And just like Jesus, we too should seek and save the lost sinners of our world. And that's a great application of this text. It gets a gold star. But, or and, might there be a little more here for us to unpack and consider? Let's see. How about this? In reading the story of Zacchaeus, or in hearing it just now this morning, did it cross your mind, or have you ever asked yourself, I wonder how it was that Zacchaeus got himself lost? What is it that makes him lost? How did he get lost? What happened? Here's a possible, if not likely, answer. Once upon a time, Long before Jesus strolled into this Sadducean town of Jericho, the Sadducees had a problem. Actually, the Sadducees had lots of problems. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> Been waiting all week to tell you guys that. You remember the Sadducees, right? The Sadducees were the official leaders of God's people. They ran the temple, God's house of worship. They were the leaders of God's people, and in Jesus' day at least, they had become very, very corrupt. They took advantage of the poor. They were quick to line their own pockets and had grown very, very rich. Rich by exploiting the poor. Well, the Sadducees had a problem. And so one day, they got together and came up with a plan. Maybe their planning session went something like this. Men, we need money. We need money to pay taxes to Rome so they stay happy with us and keep us in power. We need it to keep the temple running. And men, we certainly need it to make sure we're paid. Can I get an amen? No, that's a bad example. Not you guys. The citizens. Some of you, it's a knee-jerk, right? You could even be dozing and also, can I get, amen! (laughs) Careful what you say amen to. (laughs) We need money, men. The receipts are piling up. We still owe Dionysius of Pergamum for the last shipment of fine wine he sent to us. Boy, didn't that taste good. Men, we need money. But, as you are well aware, that Roman money has images on it. Ah. Pictures of Caesar. 
And you know, God's law, Torah, takes a rather dim view of images. Made the top ten. God's law says we, we can't touch those images or we become unclean. And you just know that those Pharisees are going to raise a holy ruckus if we handle Roman money, become unclean, and still try to run the temple. So, here's what our finance committee has proposed. We get someone else to do the dirty work. We get someone to launder this unclean money for us. We get someone else to handle the money. Now, this won't be easy because whoever it is that we're going to ask, they're going to have to be willing to become unclean from touching the money themselves. But you know, gentlemen, as well as I do, that everyone has their price. If we just pay them enough, we'll find some poor schlock. All-time favorite word there, ladies and gentlemen. I think it's Hebrew. It might be Yiddish. We'll find some poor schlock who will do it. All in favor? Aye, 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 aye. None opposed? Motion carried. All right. Ananias, you're up. Go find someone else to handle the money. And in Jericho, in Jesus' days, Zacchaeus became one of those someone else's. We don't know how much they paid him, but it was enough to make him sell out to sin. Say, well, big deal. So he's unclean. It was a big deal. When he agreed to become a tax collector, chief tax collector, in fact, when he agreed to do that and become unclean because he handled coins with images on them, he gave up his community. He could no longer attend synagogue. And when he walked down the street, people quickly crossed over to the other side to avoid him because, boy, if they got too close, and oh my goodness, if they touched him, heaven forbid that they touch him, they too would become unclean. And so people stared and stayed away. And they pointed. And if Zacchaeus got too close, they'd actually spit at him and call him unclean. Sinner. There goes that Zacchaeus. He sold out for money. A tax collector and sinner. So when Zacchaeus agreed to collect taxes for the Jewish leadership and for Rome... He agreed to become an outcast. He agreed to become an untouchable. He became a lost sheep of Israel. And who was it? Don't miss this. Who was it that pressured Zacchaeus into becoming a lost sheep? The shepherds. The leaders of God's people. The very ones that God gave the responsibility for looking after His precious, beloved flock of sheep. The shepherds of God's people forced a sheep to get lost. That defies any definition of shepherd. They made Zacchaeus an outcast. Someone his own people hid their faces from, despised, and even spit upon. The leaders of God's people took Zacchaeus' community from him. His friends, perhaps even his family, Everyone, the shepherds of God's people, tempted Zacchaeus until he could stand it no more.
to go astray. But hey, somebody's got to do it, right? It's in this context that Jesus strolls into Jericho that day. Zacchaeus! In Hebrew, Zacchaeus! Come on down! Quick! I'm staying with you at your place. Today, salvation has come to your house. One of the eight uses of salvation in Luke. And then Jesus says something that makes all the difference to everyone. To Zacchaeus, to the Sadducees, and I hope to you and me. He said, for I came to seek and save the lost. What's so powerful about that phrase, I came to seek and save the lost? Well, Ezekiel 34, of all places, helps us here. In Ezekiel 34, God vigorously condemns the shepherds of His people for looking after themselves rather than caring for the sheep of Israel. Ezekiel 34.4 contains one of the many pointed accusations that God makes against the leaders of Israel. God says, you have not brought back the strays or even searched for the lost. And because the leaders of God's people failed to do this, God in Ezekiel makes an amazing promise, an oath, one that he repeats over and over and over again. You can tell God is worked up about this one. Saying it once is not enough. He does it over and over again, this promise, and he does it in what Hebrew grammar folks will call emphatic first person singular. I think you'll be able to hear it. God says, because you shepherds have not brought back the strays or even searched for the lost, God says, I myself will search for my sheep and look for them. I will rescue them. I will pasture them. I myself will tend my sheep. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will save my flock. In other words, God Almighty swears that He Himself, I Myself, God says, will seek and save the lost. And there's more. God also swears in that same passage that He will destroy the shepherds for their failure to tend the sheep. God says, I am against the shepherds. Uh-oh. You don't want God against you. And he says, I am against the shepherds, and I will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. The sleek and the strong, I will bring down. You want sleek and strong? Wait till you get a load of me. I will destroy them, God swears, in Ezekiel. Now let's do the story of Zacchaeus again with that background in place. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through on his way to die. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. 
But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, I know Zacchaeus was short, but let me ask you this. Why climb a tree? Why not get a front row seat on the curb where Jesus is coming? Why not push your way through the crowd so you can see? Why not? He can't go anywhere near it. Those people will spit at him. Remember, he's an outcast. He can't push to the front. He can't. Ah, what are you doing here? Get up. Boo! Sinner! Start picking up stuff and throw Seriously. Seriously. This is what he... Li- so the guy does the only thing. He climbs a tree. Sycamore fig tree. Not the stoutest thing in the world. It's a good thing he was a wee little man. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. <laughs> There's a sermon in that phrase by itself. He doesn't miss any lost sheep wherever they're perching. Sheep climb trees, did you know? He looked up. Even though his focus is on Jerusalem, he's going to die. This is probably preoccupying him a bit. He looks up and sees a lost sheep in a tree. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I'll bet. <laughs> come down immediately, Zacchaeus. Come down. I'll bet that guy broke the Olympic record of forgetting out of a tree. I bet he did a Chris Sage fall out of that tree. Oh, whoa! This is Jesus, whose reputation thousands at least at this hung on his every word. This is the man who walked on water. This is the man who calmed the storm. This is the man who gave sight to the blind. This is the man who the, the lame could now leap for joy. This is the one who even raised someone from the dead. And I wonder if Zacchaeus is even there that day because the rumor was, this is the man who hung out with sinners. He even touched lepers. He touched women who couldn't stop bleeding. He went to the prostitutes. He went... Do you think maybe that this man came out of his house that day and risked having rocks being thrown at him and spit on because he desperately he wants to see someone who maybe can hear his cry? Come down immediately. Oh, he noticed me. And he didn't try to knock me out of the tree with a rock. Boom. Look at the next verse. So he came down at once. Everyone else around is going, what did Jesus just say? He's interesting. And look at the next line. Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. How many of you know enough about Jewish culture to know even today how Jews welcome each other? If a Jew welcomes you today, they might respect our Western culture. Hi, how you doing? You know, or knuckle up, right, Chris? Don't want to get too close. Jewish or Eastern cultures, what do they do? Here's where I wish the stairs were. You'd be glad the stairs aren't here because I'd come find one of you and do this. 
oh man, Zechariah hits the ground. Wow, well, now what do I do? And people are like parting of the Red Sea of the crowd now. <laughs> Seriously. I want to touch this guy. And he's, I picture him kind of maybe running up to Jesus and then, is this a trick? Am I going to get hurt again? And that twinkle in our compassionate Savior's eye as he sees, now oh, come here. And I'll bet he just... And at first Zacchaeus is like, this guy probably hasn't been touched for years. And then he melts. And I know the hymn hadn't been written yet, but I'll bet its inspiration came from that. He touched me. Oh, he's touching me. And all oh, the joy that fills my soul. Right? Something happened and now I know. Help me. He touched me and made me whole. And just look what happens in the text when Jesus touches him. The man breaks. He gushes. I mean, he probably hasn't been touched in years. Counselors tell us today that's one of the absolute worst things that can happen to a human being. No physical contact ever with anyone. Starts messing with your head. And the rest of you, your heart and soul too. Look at Zakai. Oh, look, Lord. Look, Lord. I'll give half of everything I own. And if I've cheated anybody, I'll pay anyone I ever cheated four times over. Oh, look at me. He's touching me. And there stands everyone else there with their teeth in their mouths. Everyone else there is in shock that Jesus is with this schlock. I couldn't resist, sorry. And it's reasonable to presume Jesus noticed or heard their murmuring and muttering. And so perhaps in response to the disgust seething from many around Him, Jesus chooses that moment to announce with Zacchaeus, no doubt, standing right there. Today, salvation has come to this house because He also is a son of Abraham. How dare you? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what you lost. And as soon as Jesus said that, what did everyone hear? Other than the clear words, what did Zach, what did Zachy hear? What did Zacchaeus hear? Think Ezekiel. He's thinking, oh, he just called me a sheep. Now that might not be so nice in our day. I'm still a sheep. I think if the man was weeping already, now he wept like a baby for a week at least. I'm still a sheep. Abraham's my father too. What did the Sadducees hear? They knew Ezekiel. They knew what Jesus was quoting. And what does that same passage say about them, the leaders of God's people? I will hold you accountable for what you have done to my sheep. I will bring you down. I will destroy you for what you have done. This is no Jesus meek and mild. Not here. Not that day in Jericho. This is God Himself hugging a sheep that they are responsible for losing. 
And I'll bet when Jesus was defending to the crowd His actions in saving this lost sheep and going to His house, I'll bet when He was defending for saving the sheep that everyone hated, I'll bet when Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, I'll bet there was fire in His eyes. And tears of compassion for Zacchaeus and the lost everywhere. I'll bet his voice broke. The fiery, tearful eyes of Almighty God looking out at a hostile crowd while clutching the one that if they had two seconds with him, they'd just soon stone him. I came to seek and save the lost. And ain't nobody better getting between me and my sheep and the ones who have already. Look out! I will take you out of the way. No wonder the Sadducees hated Jesus. <laughs> He's running around quoting prophets, quoting God, getting people all riled up that the leadership in Israel, them, that they're corrupt and they're going to be destroyed. And what's more, he's sitting there saying, and God sent me to do it. Them's fighting words. And P.S. What did everyone there also hear Jesus say that day about who He is? Remember, look at Zacchaeus in verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Interesting. What was His answer? I'm transitioning here a bit to John's Gospel emphasis next week, but that's okay. What did everyone hear that day about who Jesus is? They heard Him, just as plain as the nose on my face, they heard Him say, I am God Almighty. How, you ask? Put it together with Ezekiel. When Jesus says that He, Jesus, came to seek and save the lost, who is he quoting in Ezekiel as if he was the original quoter? Who first said that it was his job to save and seek the lost? In Ezekiel, who first said it? That's a direct quote from God himself. Jesus quotes God himself who said in Ezekiel, I myself will seek and save the lost. And so God says in Ezekiel, I myself will seek and save the lost. And Jesus says in Luke 19, and that would be me. And not long after that, they put Jesus on trial for blasphemy, claiming to be God. Gee, I wonder why. And so, yes, the story of Zacchaeus is about seeking and saving the lost sinners of our world. Amen. But it's also a warning. It's a warning against the rich and powerful, the leaders of God's people, the wealthy of this world, to take care of God's sheep, and especially when one goes wandering off to seek after it relentlessly at whatever personal time and expense, whatever it takes to get that sheep back in the fold. And the story of Zacchaeus is also about finding the outcasts of society, the ones that people have written off as worthless, the ones we tend to, even in church, unfortunately, the ones we tend to react to in disgust, the poor, the needy, those who suffer, those who have no one else to turn to. Who are those people today? The homeless? The homosexual community? The poor? 
the sick, the hungry, the gangbangers. Those are the people we need to be seeking and saving too. And God help us. May God have mercy on our wealthy souls if we ever get so caught up in ourselves that we forget about the outcasts that in Luke especially, Jesus runs to and touches and hugs and helps every chance He gets. And before I, I only continue to challenge God's people to have compassion on the lost and the outcast, please know, if you are one that has been lost, please know this morning that you are deeply loved by God. He is madly, desperately in love with you. And since that day you stepped away, even now, He's searching for you. He loves you. I'll end with this. My friends, heed the warning in Luke, church of God. Don't miss this. Do not get in God's way of seeking and saving those the world calls worthless. Don't we dare pile on the helpless, the sinners, the confused, the poor, the lost. Don't we dare pile on them with the hard, cold, fallen world. We had better be helping them. We'd better find that same gut-wrenching compassion for the outcasts and do all we can, sacrifice all we are to seek and to save them in Jesus' name. Do you suppose for a second that if we don't, if we in fact through direct action or indirect inaction, if we get in between God and a lost sheep He desperately loves, do you suppose for a second He won't take us out of the way to reach that lost sheep? I know God is long-suffering. He is patient. But I'll tell you, you want to see... Take a look. Genesis through Revelation. You want to see God get up off His long-suffering and patient throne and come with a vengeance? You don't. But if you did, you want to see Him come with fire in His eyes? Take advantage of the poor or the weak or the young or the elderly. That is the one thing throughout Scripture that gets God to where He has had enough. And He comes running to the rescue of all of Israel's sin, of all of her idolatry, the thing most emphasized in the prophets, the thing that cost Israel the promised land and actually turned the one who loved them most, God, against His most cherished possession, the thing that got Him up off His throne and said, Go ahead, Assyria. Go ahead, Babylon. Maybe crying as He did it, but the, the thing that cost Israel everything Throughout the, they took advantage of the poor. In Luke, Jesus is the compassionate Savior, and it is a driven compassion. It is an at all costs compassion. It's a compassion that stands up to the rich and powerful who get in the way. He will save the lost no matter what it takes. And the question is, this Christmas and every day after, will we help Him? 
or will we get in the way? There's no middle ground. Either we're helping or we're getting in the way. Now, my brothers and sisters whom I love dearly, given Ezekiel, here's a strong suggestion from me to you. Let's help him. (laughs) Won't you, this Christmas, recommit to showing others Jesus through your compassionate efforts to seek and to save those the world calls lost causes? Will we, too, compassionately seek and save what was lost? Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us who have so much have been so blessed and yet we do nothing but complain forgive us Father for having so much and turning a blind eye toward those that your son especially in Luke came to seek and to save and to help and to love and to hug and to be there for. Oh, Father, forgive us. Father, this Christmas as we gather around the manger and peer on the One who came from heaven's glory into a human body to die for us. Help us, Father, remember that He died for them squelch in us any feeling of superiority or pride or that's their problem or if they only just would get a job or Father help us look through your son's fiery tearful eyes at those who are hurting Give us what it takes to help them in your Son's name. Thank you for being the compassionate Savior. We love you, and we pray this in the awesome, mighty, powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen? Amen. One more performance tonight. Don't miss it. There's rumors swirling. Best ever. You don't want to miss best ever. few tickets out there. Buy a couple. Bring a friend. If you need someone to pray with you, someone will be down here up front who would love to pray with you. God bless you guys. Have a great day. I love you. Praise God.